Section twenty five of the Life of Mozart, Volume One by Otto Jahn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Mozart by Otto Jahn. Section twenty five. Chapter eleven. The last opera of the series we have been considering is the festival opera Il Re Pastore, composed in honor of the Archduke Maximilian at Salzburg in seventeen seventy five, to the text of Metastasio. Kershaw number 208. The characters and plot are as follows. Alessandro, re di Macedonia. Aminta, pastorello, amante d'Elisa, che, ignoto a se stesso, si scuopre poi l'unico legittimo erede del regno di Sidone. Elisa, nobile ninfa di Fenicia, dell'antica stirpe di Cadmo, amante d'Aminta. Tamiri, principessa fuggitiva figliola del tiranno Stratone, in abito di pastorella, amante di Agenore. Agenore, nobile di Sidone, amico di Alessandro, amante di Tamiri. Alexander, having conquered Sidon and slain the tyrant Strabo, determines to place on the throne Abdalamanus, son of the last rightful king, who has been secretly brought up as a shepherd under the name of Aminta by a faithful dependent of his father. At the opening of the piece we find him in the midst of his flocks, while Elisa brings him the joyful tidings of the probable consent of her parents to their union. She has scarcely left him when Alexander, conducted by Agenore, enters, in order to convince himself if Aminta is worthy of the throne he intends to offer him. Aminta's virtuous moderation stands every test. While he is watering his flocks, there enters Tamiri, Strabo's daughter, disguised as a shepherdess. Agenore extols to her Alexander's generosity, and promises to intercede on her behalf. The assurance of his faithful love consoles her, and she resolves to await his answer, concealed by Elisa. Elisa now enters, bearing to Aminta her father's full consent to their union. In the midst of their transport, Agenore makes Aminta acquainted with his destiny, hands him the crown, and summons him to the presence of Alexander. The lovers pledge their faith anew with much rejoicing. In the second act, Elisa and Tamiri come to the camp of Alexander in order to see their lovers. Tamiri, unable to overcome her fear, withdraws. Elisa seeks in vain to speak to Aminta, Agenore informing her that Aminta is occupied with more important concerns, at the same time that he respectfully reminds Aminta, who is impatient to find Elisa, of his duties as a monarch. At last Alexander appears and receives the grateful homage of Aminta, who expresses most virtuous resolutions for his future rule. On Alexander expressing regret that Tamiri should shun his presence, Agenore takes the opportunity of acquainting Alexander with her near approach. To Agenore's dismay, Alexander resolves to unite her with Aminta. With the idea, however, that this will conduce to Tamiri's happiness, Agenore controls his desires and counsels Aminta to renounce Elisa. Before the unwilling lover is convinced, Tamiri and Elisa enter, and, seeing their lovers stand confused and silent, believe them to be faithless. At the opening of the third act, Aminta, after many scruples, informs Agenore of his determination to fulfill the duty which he believes himself to owe to Alexander. These tidings are carried by Agenore to Elisa, who refuses to doubt Aminta's truth, and will not be persuaded that submission to her fate will best prove her love for Aminta. Agenore's own constancy is put to a severer test when Tamire vehemently accuses him of having deserted her for Aminta's sake, but he remains firm. Then there appears before Alexander, who is preparing for the celebration of the union, first Tamire, who declares her love for Agenore, and refuses to break her faith with him, even for the sake of a throne, then Elisa, who tells the claims she has on Aminta's heart, and finally Aminta himself, dressed as a shepherd, returns his crown to Alexander, being unable to renounce Elisa's love. 
Moved by all this nobleness and devotion, Alexander unites the lovers, reinstates Aminta as king of Sidon, and promises to conquer another realm for Agenore. Metastasio wrote this opera in 1751 for performance at court by four maids of honor and a cavalier. He paid due regard to fitting costumes, and to the virtue and nobility of each character. The pains he took at the rehearsals were requited. Bono's music was excellent, the scenery and costumes most brilliant, the noble performers acquitted themselves to perfection, and all was applause and approbation. No wonder that he recommended the piece to Farinelli as a suitable festival opera. It has, in fact, been composed very often since. It was considerably curtailed for representation at Salzburg. The second and third acts were compressed into one, whereby not only was the dialogue abridged, but several songs were omitted without serious injury to the text. There were other small alterations and some few additions, but nothing essential was disturbed. Instead of Aminta's first air, Act One, Scene Two, another was introduced with an accompanied recitative, and before the duet at the end of the first act an accompanied recitative was omitted. Instead of the short concluding chorus, a kind of finale was inserted, in which soli and tutti alternate. The part of Agenore was given to a tenor, Aminta to the male soprano consoli. Beyond this we know nothing of the cast or of the performance. Mozart's composition, of which the original score in two volumes of 284 pages has been preserved, has the same finish of execution and invention which was so marvelously seen in the Finta Giardiniera, but the conventionalities of form are far more of a hindrance here than in the previous work. No scope was allowed for dramatic force or true passion. The work must be kept strictly within the limits of the festival opera. The Salzburg singers, too, seem to have preferred the beaten track to any extraordinary displays of skill. This is most apparent in the tenor part of Alexander. His three songs, whose commonplace virtuous reflections give little scope for musical treatment, have, like the regular bravura songs, a long ritornello, bravura passages, the shake at the end, and the usual cadenza. In details, the effort to metamorphose the form is apparent. The second part appears as a second subject, and the passages are made more interesting by their harmonic treatment, and by the prominence given to the accompaniment. The melodies are better built up. They have more musical substance. The accompaniment takes up detached portions of the chief melodies, and gives a firmer connection to the parts. The words of the first air give occasion for some of the then-favorite musical painting. Lightning, thunder, and rain are depicted by the orchestra, but without undue prominence. The second air is interesting through the obligato treatment of the wind instruments. The flute competing with the voice in passages. Johann Baptiste Becke, born in 1743, who had been trained under Wendling to become an admirable flautist, was summoned from Munich for this performance. The third air is in the serious conventional style, not wanting in dignity. More individuality is given to the parts of Aminta and Elisa. At first the prevailing element is pastoral, as was usual in festival operas. The overture, consisting of one movement, molto allegro, leads directly to Aminta's first song, by a pleasant pastoral melody. It is a simple shepherd song, characterized by its six-eight time, and by the flute and horn accompaniment. For the better contentment of the singer, the soprano consuli from Munich, his second song is a genuine bravura, in its division into a brilliant allegro aperto and an elegant grazioso, as well as in details, the old style is apparent, but all is so much freer, fuller, and in spite of its fragmentary construction, so much more connected, that one feels a new spirit floating through the obsolete forms. Aminta's last air, when he declares himself true to his love, shakes itself quite loose from the fetters. It has the rondo form. The principal theme, twice relieved by an interlude, recurs three times, and winds up with a coda. The beauty of this cantilene is enhanced by a violin solo, written doubtless for Brunetti, equally simple and tuneful in style. 
The muted strings accompany the principal subject with a slightly agitated passage. The wind instruments, two flutes, two English horns, two bassoons, and two horns, are treated independently, and as delicately and tenderly as the tone of the piece requires. Elisa's first song unites in a singular degree the pastoral with the bravura character. The noble lady depicts the happiness of living as a shepherdess near her beloved Aminta. The traditional form has been so skillfully modified, and an almost playful grace is so freshly and charmingly expressed, that this song may justly be placed on a level with some of Mozart's later concert songs. The second air is more strictly according to rule. The situation does not lend itself to freedom of treatment, and Mozart has contented himself with composing a harmonious and effective song. The duet between Elisa and Aminta at the close of the first act is light and pleasing, surpassing former efforts of the same kind in its clever management of the voices and in the originality of its subject. It is a charming idea and an appropriate one to carry on the subject of the andante with altered rhythm into the allegro. The parts of Tamiri and Agenore are quite secondary, scarcely more than stop-gaps. Tamiri's first air is a bravura song of the ordinary type. The second is almost soubrette-like in its airy lightness. Agenore's first air is tender and pleasing, not much in accord with the situation. His second air is pathetic, in a minor key, and stands alone of its kind. Restless agitation is portrayed by a varied and striking harmony, emphasized by strongly accented chords for the wind instruments, four horns besides oboes and bassoons. But neither the character of Agenore nor the moralizing words give any opening for pathos. The finale consists of a brilliant four-part tutti movement, which is repeated entire or in part several times. Passages for single voices are inserted, alternating cleverly and with a pleasing effect. Mozart's evident longing to break loose from the fetters of conventionality and tradition is nowhere more apparent than in the accompaniment and in the orchestral movements, where we find a fullness and freedom of thought hitherto only shown in detached passages. Even when the old fashion is retained of employing only oboes and horns, there is an evident appreciation of the special powers of the instruments expressed, it may be, in a few notes. The orchestra has its own significance, and Mozart turns to account his intimate knowledge of the orchestra of opera seria. Trifling as these instrumental effects may appear, the main point, the instrumental music was henceforth to take an active part both in serious and comic opera, was one of great importance in the history of their development. End of section 25, chapter 11.